This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. During the last week, I was in Ukraine and had intended to share the glimpse that I had of life in a country at war with my podcast listeners. But while I was away, there were horrific events in Israel, and that is what we will focus on today. The country is descending more deeply into chaos by the moment. The Prime Minister seems to be dangerously disconnected. Twelve Israelis have been murdered in terror attacks in recent weeks, and a mob of Jewish settlers attacked an Arab village on Sunday, seeking revenge, murdering, and setting homes and vehicles on fire. Haviv Redigur, political analyst with the Times of Israel, wrote an exceptional piece a few days ago, questioning who, if anyone, is in control of the government of Israel. And that is exactly what I was asking from afar as these events unfolded. March 2nd in Tel Aviv, a beautiful morning here, and I'm joined by Haviv Redigur, political analyst at the Times of Israel. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the compliments. Let's just dive right into this because we have so much to cover and, as always, so little time. Some very, very disturbing events that have taken place since the weekend. And you mentioned Hawara. So would you mind just kind of briefly setting out for our listeners what happened in Hawara, a Palestinian village in the northern west? There is a major West Bank highway that cuts right through the middle of that village. And it's, and it's also a big market town. And, and on the highway, along the road, are many, many stores and shops, and everyone shops there. Palestinians and Israelis, settlers, Israelis from within the Green Line go to those stores to shop as well. Signs are in Arabic and in Hebrew. In that sense, it is a town that it just sees a tremendous amount of traffic and many different kinds of people. And in the traffic jam on Sunday morning, a gunman opened fire, a Palestinian terrorist opened fire and murdered two Israelis. Two Israelis who were residents of the nearby town. Those deaths sent, I think, a real and a profound and and an absolutely authentic shockwave, first of all through Israeli society, but especially intensely, of course, through their own community. And at about, I think it was 3 or 4 p.m. that day, a poster was was going around on social media and on a group of the Israelis living in the area that called for a massive march on Hawara that would end with protests at all the entrances to the nearby Palestinian city of Nablus. And it was a it was explicitly in the poster depicted as a revenge post as a revenge march. They said we want uh, victory, we want revenge and they went on march, you know, hours ahead of time they announced it. They at 6 p.m. arrive at the village, essentially bands of Israeli residents of Halbacha and some others Dozens went in, probably a couple hundred or more were protesting around the village, generally in the area. They immediately clashed with the very, very few soldiers and police who were there. The army, even though they knew about it happening, did not show up in time. When soldiers did show up, they were few and far between. The best they could do, uh, sometimes they confronted uh, the settlers. The settlers were violent against, uh, uh, behaved very violently against the Israeli forces. And in many places inside the village, as 
the Israeli mob essentially began to set cars and even buildings on fire. The soldiers were reduced to trying to rescue the Palestinians, push them out of the way of the mob, things like that. Not until four hours after the revenge riots had begun on Sunday evening did the public hear from anyone in government, the first being Finance Minister Betzalel Smotrich, a religious Zionist extremist who, in addition to serving as finance minister, has responsibility, we think, over civilian matters in the West Bank. I say, we think, because the scope of his authority in this regard is vague and has been the subject of confusion and discord between him and the Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant. Gallant, by the way, was silent on Sunday. And not until early Monday morning did Prime Minister Netanyahu indicate to the public that he was actively engaged in this latest crisis. But more on that in a few minutes. For months now, there has been deep concern in Israeli security circles over the splitting of the IDF Central Command over all military matters. It has ever been thus centralized and is considered to be imperative in order to manage the complex security challenges with which Israel must contend. But Netanyahu seems to have granted bits and pieces of authority that encroach on IDF turf to appease his right-wing ministers Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzalel Smotrich. Without them, his coalition is doomed and they are leveraging their power very adeptly. Meanwhile, scores of former IDF chiefs of staff and retired generals have been sounding alarms for months now that carving up authorities would create chaos for Israel's security institutions and operations. And that seems to be exactly what transpired on Sunday evening. This event happened um, over the course of about an hour, maybe two during the violence, the protesters actually, the the mob actually took a break from the violence to to pray the evening prayer required in Judaism, and then went back to ransacking the town and setting fires. And he, Netanyahu, at midnight convenes a security briefing with all the heads of the security services to start cracking down and taking care of what's going on. And then huge military forces are deployed and police are deployed and and investigations are launched and the whole thing starts to get cleaned up. Shortly after you wrote a piece and you were speculating based on the facts that you've now shared with us and that you understood and the complete disappearance of our government officials really in a moment of crisis you were speculating who's in control what's going on here right netanyahu's brand is i'm i'm the steering wheel i'm driving the bus it's always me i'm the guy who runs likud i'm going to be controlling everyone and then we had this right, which, by the disaster way, on sunday and yeah. who's in control he's his his go to <clears throat> His go-to line repeatedly has been, I, I have two hands on the wheel. And that itself, to me, is an indictment of himself. Because what he has said to people, he won't defend Ben Gvir. He won't defend, you know, he won't defend his government from those accusations that maybe it's... The only thing he has left to say is, don't worry, all these terrible things that my government is talking about, don't listen to the talk. Just, just, I'm the only one. And I'm still who I was 10 years ago when you all became my friends. I mean, B.B., really is truly a liberal democrat but he wants to keep power and in order to do that he's aligned himself with a 
group of really extremists. They're all extremists. He is personally liberal. <coughs> and There's no one to the left of him. On and has decades of, of compromises with illiberal Israeli political forces, especially the ultra-Orthodox, but not only, yeah. who advance things he doesn't believe in. But to hold coalitions together, he has conceded to them vast policy realms. And now he has handed the West Bank the West Bank, the Palestinian situation, which could ignite at any moment. We know all the data tells us that, that a young generation among Palestinians is itching for war, essentially. And this is 87. When he dies, there's very likely or quite likely to be a Palestinian power struggle for control of the Palestinian-held areas of the West Bank. And heading into that chaos, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich are in charge of the West Bank, by law, they changed the laws to create positions to allow them to have that power, yes. that influence. The defense minister is still very much in charge. Netanyahu wants everyone to believe that Likud's Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, is still the one officially in charge of the West Bank. But Smotrich keeps insisting and keeps getting Netanyahu to say in writing that, in fact, it is Smotrich and Ben Gvir. And well, so, in fact, they signed an agreement to that effect last week. They signed week. an agreement to that effect last week, reiterating and affirming the agreement they have in the coalition agreement. So the question is, is Netanyahu actually in control of the West Bank? And the simple answer is, anyone who tells you they know absolutely it is lying. Right. Netanyahu has some control. When Smotrich was, brought the wrath of the Americans on this government by saying Hawara should be burned to the ground, right. and, he, and he, he liked a tweet that said that the night of, two hours before his 1.10 p.m. statement. But then the next day, at a con- or two days later at a conference, he's asked by a journalist, you liked a tweet that said burn the Hawara to the ground. And he said, well, we should burn Hawara to the ground, but the state should do it, not the mob. That was his answer. And then the State Department came out and said, you know, this is, this is terrible. And- the Hawara murders and subsequent revenge attack occurred in the context of an already tense situation in Israel due to the government's proposed judicial reforms. Bear with me while I provide a very brief background on this issue that is tearing the country apart. Israel has no written constitution or Bill of Rights. What that means is that there is no foundational framework addressing basic principles like freedom of speech, assembly, equality, that are all features of a robust liberal democracy. Israel also has a parliamentary system of government. But unlike virtually all parliamentary democracies, Israel has only one legislative chamber. Typically, there is an upper chamber, like a Senate, to offer scrutiny, sober reflection, second thoughts, before finalizing a new law. This is part of a system of checks and balances on the exercise of legislative power. To date, the Israeli Supreme Court has fulfilled that check and balance function. But a broad consensus across the political spectrum agrees that the very activist Supreme Court has assumed for itself excessive power and must be more restrained. So, how to do that? How to recalibrate the balance and interactions between the key democratic institutions? Well, the response of this government to this very fundamental issue has been harsh. It proposes what amounts to a judicial revolution with two main changes. Firstly, the government would assume complete political control over judicial appointments. And secondly, it would introduce a so-called override clause, which would mean that the barest majority of the Knesset, 61 out of 120 members, would have the power to overturn any decision of the Israeli Supreme Court, 
eviscerating it entirely. It is difficult to understand what would be its continued role in Israeli democracy or what would be left of it. And this is really where the rubber hits the road. If 61 members of the Knesset can make law with no institutional checks and balances, with absolutely no oversight, well, that begins to look and sound a lot less like a liberal democracy. If 61 MKs can make any law, and they will be able to do just that under the proposed reforms, then minority rights will be threatened, among others. This is why Israel must either have some form of constitutional document or, at a minimum, a much higher threshold for triggering an override clause, say, 75 or 80 out of 120 Knesset members. But Prime Minister Netanyahu and his coalition partners prefer to explain these issues as a simple matter of mathematics. There was a hope. We have a majority. End of discussion. The real reasons behind this push for such a low override threshold are even more disturbing. They have nothing to do with high-minded ideals. Quite the contrary. Among the many competing coalition demands with which Netanyahu contends are those made by Aryeh Derry, the head of the ultra-Orthodox Shas party, which commands 11 Knesset seats. Derry was recently found to be utterly unsuited to hold cabinet office by, you guessed it, the Supreme Court of Israel. Aryeh Derry has been convicted on corruption charges and served hard time. That was more than 20 years ago. Then, in February 2022, just a year ago, he pleaded guilty to reduce charges of tax evasion and received a suspended sentence. All these crimes were committed while he served as a cabinet minister. And now, Aryeh Derry is demanding that he sit as Minister of Health and Interior concurrently. In two years, he has negotiated with Prime Minister Netanyahu that he will become the Minister of Finance. A recidivist criminal convicted of financial crimes is to be elevated, yet again, to high office. But in order for Derry to be reinstated as a minister, the Knesset must first have the power to override Supreme Court decisions. Which brings us full circle. And that is a change to the basic law. Now, at this very moment, this government is pushing forward changes to basic laws directed at personally allowing an ex-con to sit in the cabinet against a Supreme Court ruling that that's not kosher, and, and therefore they want to make basic laws you know, immune to judicial review while also allowing them to pass anything they want in a basic law. Okay, so they could, ridiculous scenario, but they could pass a law tomorrow under their proposed system that says... We're only going to hold elections once every 10 years. And there would be no way to review, repeal, rescind that law. And that doesn't sound terribly democratic to me. And apparently there are a few Israelis who agree. So there have been a series, as we know, for eight weeks of demonstrations in the streets every Saturday night. But yesterday, Wednesday, was a special day of demonstration. Tell us a bit about what happened. What was the demonstration called to do and what transpired, particularly in Tel Aviv? I think the, the fear, well, so, you know, to explain yesterday's demonstration, as you say, there is, there is a sense, it, the country is divided about half and half. Half the country genuinely believes this is the end of democracy. The 
reason they believe that is both the actual substance of, of these of these reforms and also the fact that the people pushing these reforms have refused to talk about them. Yariv Levine wouldn't give an interview for months until this week. He gave his first interview, and in his interview, he didn't answer any of the questions any of us had. Israelis aren't just listening to him, and he himself isn't aware of what the people around him are saying. We have his partners in the coalition, ultra-Orthodox parties, proposing all kinds of laws to massively, right now, on the books of the Knesset, going through the Knesset, massively increase the power of the, of the religious rabbinate, of the religious courts. A Shas member of Knesset about a month ago proposed a bill to make immodest dress at the Western Wall carry a six-year prison sentence. Now, that was something that a lot of American Jews were horrified about. American Jews tend to go to the Western Wall more than secular Israelis. But they were so horrified that Netanyahu called in the Shas member of Knesset and had this long conversation in which he said, "Don't you're embarrassing us. And then the Shas member of Knesset was shocked because that bill itself was in the coalition agreement they'd signed two months earlier. But he pulled the bill. But the point is that the language and the discourse around this by people who are not Yariv Levine is conveying to this, that half of Israel that the moment they have all this power, they intend to use it to create essentially a kind of theocratic Kahanist state. In politics, you don't expect people to be honest. But the message, the message being heard by the other half of Israel is that there is a war against them. And that the point and purpose, there are two levels here. There's a constitutional debate, and that's in one, one level. And the right. second level is the sense of war. And the sense that the real thing happening for which the constitutional changes are just 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 the the mechanism is that half of Israel has gone to war and has is planning it wants to destroy the other half, and that drives a kind of fight or flight response on the center left that we haven't seen before. And, and so, so the, the protests, half of it, the half of Israel that you're saying wants to destroy the Israel as we know it today, would be the half that sits in the coalition government. Correct. The ultra-Orthodox parties, the religious Zionists and far-right, and the Likud. Correct. Now, that is a very cartoonish sort of brushstroke, vague brushstroke thing. Many, many on the right are very upset about a lot of what's happening, but they won't speak. One of the things you, you well, said... you said, you know... No, but it's important that they don't speak. Not, not as a... I'm not, yes, it's, it's bad, but... Silence is complicity. In fairness, we have seen quite a few MKs leave Likud, and they've left Likud on principle because they simply could not abide what was happening in the party in terms of conduct and policy. So, you know, you have, I mean, I'm a bit of an idealist. When you sit as a member of Knesset, you do have a high responsibility to the people of the country. And not just the people who voted for you, yes. to all the people of the country. So that's something, I'm not prepared to accept that level of cynicism and normalize it. I want to go back to the war metaphor, though. That basically, you know, you were saying that we've got this, you know, in effect, real assault, both, I think, metaphorically and literally, on half of the population who feel our country, our way of life, our democracy is under siege. And the messaging we're receiving from those in power in the coalition government isn't exactly contradicting that perception. Last night... I'm sure you watched, as I did, Benny Gantz being interviewed on television. And he made a direct plea to Prime Minister Netanyahu. And he said, we have to sit down and talk. We have to negotiate. Because if we don't, we are 
headed to civil war. And we have to do everything we can to avoid that. Now, I'm paraphrasing, not perhaps exactly precisely, but that is the essence of what Benny Gantz said. And speaking at a ceremony else in Haifa yesterday evening, President Herzog made very similar comments. I will go to the ends of the earth to hold this country together. We have to find a way to come together and to resolve this deep political constitutional crisis. But the way we're going is not the way. What was your reaction to those comments by Herzog and by Benny Gantz? Well, I, I, <coughs> I find myself really very much on where Herzog is. Herzog argues two things. One is exactly what you said, which is, guys, this, you know, we're, we're, we're driving the country into a brick wall. We are going... Actually, abyss is the word. An abyss, abyss, excuse me. Yes, different metaphor, same, same... Same idea. Same explosion. We are going to, we're going to split, and we're going to split in painful ways that will be hard to, to put back together. But he has another point, and that point is this country has a funny habit of building itself stronger from absolute total collapse. We will have a country that will be start to suffer. It'll start to suffer terribly. The half of Israel that feels there's a war against it is also the half that produces all the tax base, that funds the other half. We, 50% of Haredi men refuse to participate in the workforce as an ideological choice. And they still can pay rent. And they can pay rent because Tel Aviv funds that rent. There's only so much you can go to war on Tel Aviv before you start to lose the money that you need to pay for all the... right. So there's an imbalance here that doesn't go away. The day the reform passes, and I happen to believe that a lot of it will pass, the internal... because Netanyahu is weak. If Habib is right, then query whether Israel will still be considered a liberal democracy should these judicial reforms pass. When I was traveling back from Ukraine... During my journey, I learned that there was a nationwide day of disruption being organized by government opponents with plans to block roads and highways. I had no idea what to expect, nor what had already sadly transpired. Yesterday in Tel Aviv, I actually landed, I arrived from Odessa, I've been in Ukraine for a week, landed in the afternoon and I had heard on the way that there were significant demonstrations yes. all over the country and nobody knew if and how we were going to be able to get home from the airport. Turns out I got in a taxi at the airport and literally flew up the Ayalon, which is the highway that bisects Tel Aviv on a north-south access, access because the police had just reopened the highway. That moment. Yeah, and it was You like, timed that flight. That man, oh man, that was great. Yeah, alone so, clears out for an American president and uh, no one else. And me. And you. And me. <laughs> I was home in no time. The taxi driver thought, wow, this is something. But all joking aside, then we, we I went and turned on the news and I start seeing what's going on. And at one of the main intersections in Tel Aviv, the police um, used stun guns they used stun grenades. Stun grenades, and what else? They, they, I mean, there were eleven or twelve people who had to be taken to hospital with injuries. I would say like this: first of all, the protests are escalating, and the protesters declared yesterday Yom Hashibush, a disruption day. Correct. The point was to force the country to a standstill, and so they actually had gone down onto the highway 
and we're blocking the largest main highway through the center of the you know cosmopolitan economic heart of the country, right? Tel Aviv. And, and this was causing tremendous, tremendous harm. I personally oppose uh, blocking streets. I oppose it when the right does it, when the ultra-Orthodox does it. And for wonderful causes, when the Ethiopian activists blocked streets for absolutely correct reasons and causes, I opposed it. People in those in those traffic jams behind those activists could be dying in ambulances. That is not a reasonable, legitimate way to protest, in my view. The police were given this order by Bengvir, be tough, just like you are, right? On the ground, we heard, we could hear in megaphones, police officers, senior officers telling the soldiers on the ground, to the, excuse me, the officers on the ground, right. Freudian slip, the officers on the ground to, uh, to use violence. Literally, you can use force, go for it was where the words said in the megaphone. And police began to try to push back these protests with not just throwing stun grenades, but throwing them right at people. We have one protester who was taken to hospital and had to have surgery on an and by police. And then, of course, on social media, the country immediately divided half and half over who's right and who's wrong. It's the beginning of that trajectory, is the fear. And that's what, what led Benny Gantz to give that rather frightened call to not descend into a civil war. But but if this escalates, if the day of disruption becomes the standard, if highways being blocked becomes the standard, if police violence to clear them out becomes the standard, this is not going away anytime soon. And in the political system, there is this climbing up on, on ladders. You know, everyone is now up a tree and unable to come back down because everyone has to satisfy the base. No one wants to look like on the left. They can't come to a compromise because they've been for six weeks oppressed. And they had a big debate about the tyranny of the majority, and the entire system is built to prevent tyranny of the majority. And that's a system in which politicians appoint Supreme Court judges. Well, they've been kind of, you know, grasping at straws, in my view. There was that moment a few weeks ago when... Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, was interviewed by Jake Tapper, and he extolled the Canadian system. You know who has an override clause? Canada, he said to Tapper. Do you question Canada's democracy? But what Benjamin Netanyahu did not understand was that he completely misrepresented what the Canadian override clause is, how it works, and how dreadfully problematic it's always been and continues to be. So they're cherry-picking from democracy they're cherry here picking. and democracy there and what the, to try and, to make their point. Right, but Herzog's point, is, Herzog's point is, stop cherry-picking <laughs> one tiny piece. 10% of your reform is similar to 10% of Finland's system. Yeah. 10% of your reform is similar to 10% of Canada's system. But the 90% and the 100% leave nothing else standing. You want to give us Finland's system? Give us all of Finland's system. You want to give us America's? Give us all of America's. And that's Herzog's argument. Give us more institutions. Weaken the court like you want, but give us a second house of parliament, a presidential veto. Finally, I asked Tavi to comment on a bizarre incident that occurred on Wednesday night viral in Israel. Sarah Netanyahu, the wife of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, was in a North Tel Aviv hair salon that was targeted by demonstrators, leaving her trapped inside briefly until security whisked her to safety. This targeting of the Prime Minister's wife may provide great fodder for satire, but it's a touch alarming. Sarah Netanyahu, unfortunately, is not the first family member of a politician to be harassed and likely will not be the last. More on this from Aviv. Part of the protest movement has been to directly and personally reach the members of the coalition. There have been protests outside the homes of 
dozens and dozens of members of Knesset and ministers of the government, letters by former friends in the army to a lot of these former army guys who are in the coalition, people outside their homes screaming, you know, Yoav Kish, the education minister, is a former pilot. People from his former squadron stood outside his home with a megaphone telling him, we're ashamed of you. There's been a lot of very direct personal approach, and some of it has turned very, very ugly. There's been a a group that has literally become a kind of private investigation service against members of the coalition saying, you take away our individual rights, you take away our right to privacy, we take away yours, and then threatening to, for example, out as gay an ultra-Orthodox member of Knesset and having this kind of very personalized... Now, this is escalating. And what we saw with Sarnet and is this, you know, they found out she was coming somehow to this hair salon and many dozens of people you know, descended on this hair salon and stood and literally blocked the way. And she was blocked inside. Now, she's the wife of the prime minister. The security services are on the ball and they helped her out and the police protected her and took her home, right? But it was a moment that drove, that put on national television that part of this very big, very complicated campaign. Now, I don't know if most Israelis who oppose the reform or even terrified for their democracy think this is a good way to handle the campaign. But but it's a very chaotic campaign. Everyone's doing their own thing. And so there isn't any centralized campaign group that can control anyone else. The, the, this besieging of the wife or the family of, of, of a politician is something that is, I think, wrong. And what it will do, separate from the, that it's wrong, is it has, it has made it for Netanyahu more visceral. A lot of people were joking because in the end she wasn't in real danger. She was protected by massive security forces. She was in a hair salon. It all seemed very, very frivolous. Netanyahu then posts a tweet in which he embraces her and he says, you're safe now. And it was this whole big drama. Now, of course, he's going to use it in that way, right? So they essentially gave him a free campaign of you know demonizing of of, of the of the opposition it, it was it was very it was very unwise and 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 i think you know everyone likes to joke this morning everyone in the country is joking about air salons but i, I do think it was un, un it was not okay i think it was inappropriate yes it's you're quite right it's something that is easy to lampoon but there's a much more serious issue behind it Javiv, your prognosis is not very good. You think that this legislation is going to pass more or less in the way in which it's been drafted. I do. And I say that because different parts of the coalition all have red lines in different parts of the legislation. Right. And therefore, there isn't a piece of the legislation Netanyahu can compromise on without losing one or another member of the coalition, unless those members understand that this is the best deal they're going to get. And that means that there is no other coalition in which they'll get a better deal. There, ha- there has to be massive public pressure, and it has to come also from the right to force the ultra-Orthodox, for example, to raise the override from 61 to 75. Devils in the details. Yes. Haviv, thank you so much for being with us today. I look forward to having you back if, as you say, the legislation passes, and then we can talk real tough, this real bottom line, and see what happens then. Yeah, how we get out of that crisis. So that's the way it is. This night, Thursday, March 2nd, 2023, in the state of Tel Aviv and beyond. Thanks so much for listening. Like us, follow us, tell your friends and family about this podcast. We'll be back in a few days with some fascinating dispatches from my recent trip to Ukraine. Until then, have a great weekend, stay cool, be well. Vivian Berkovich, signing off from the state of Tel Aviv.